The first coming of Christ was quiet and unassuming. His second coming will be dramatically different, and every believer will take part in it. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah unpacks the extraordinary events of the second coming as Jesus returns with the armies of heaven to defeat the powers of darkness once and for all. Here's David to introduce today's eye-opening message, Shock and Awe. Hey guys, I was driving around in my car when the Iraq War started, and that's the first time I ever heard those two words, shock and awe. And of course, what we did there was kind of shock and awe, but nothing compared to the shock and awe that's about to happen someday in the near future when Jesus returns the second time and sets up his kingdom on this earth. Today we're going to talk about the second coming, not the rapture, but the coming that takes place seven years after the rapture. And we're going to see how this is going to impact the world in which we live. We'll get to that in just a moment. But first, I want to keep telling you about the resources we have for this series, a beautiful brand new book called The Great Disappearance, a book that is just just unbelievably going everywhere in the world. Uh, we have shipped out over 100,000 copies of this book already. And then there's a study guide we created that's the largest study guide we ever did because it's got 16 chapters in it. It's full of outlines and questions and applications to help you make this material come alive in your own heart. So go to our website for all of the ancillary material. But to get the book, you just need to send a gift of any size to Turning Point and tell us, I want Dr. Jeremiah's new book, The Great Disappearance. And when you send your gift, we'll send the book to you as our way of saying thank you. So here we go with part one. Um, this is really a good title for this message, Shock and All. Jenna Rose Alpern and her husband had just welcomed their first child into the world, which is an exciting time for any young couple, a time of transition and change and a time of growth, and in their case, a time for a new apartment. As residents of Jerusalem, Jenna and her husband were used to tight spaces, but with an infant on the way, their current studio felt a little too tight, so they needed something bigger. After a quick online search, the young parents found a great apartment in a great location. The space had two bedrooms, high ceilings, and a natural light filtering through windows from three sides of the building. It was everything they wanted, and they were so eager to sign on the dotted line. That's when Jenna's husband noticed the Messiah Clause in the lease. Yeah, that's right. A Messiah clause in the lease. Near the bottom of the rental agreement, they read these words printed boldly in black and white. Upon the coming of the Messiah, tenants agree to vacate the apartment within 15 days. That's in their lease agreement. Can you believe that? You won't find that anywhere in any documents in America, but such requirements are relatively common in Jerusalem. When Jewish homeowners rent their property in that city, they include a clause that ensures they will be able to return and reign with the Messiah should he appear in their lifetime. For Jenna Rose Alpern and her husband, who are themselves Jewish, 
the possibility of agreeing to such a term caused a few unexpectedly spiritual conversations. In her words, this is what we are praying for, right? A basic tenet of Judaism being that we are eagerly waiting and trying to bring Messiah speedily in our days. Honestly, it's always been too huge a concept for me to wrap my head around. I'm embarrassed to admit it. But you know what? Mrs. Alporn is not alone in feeling the tension of conflicting priorities when it comes to the arrival of the Messiah, nor are the Jewish people the only ones who find it difficult to wrap their minds around it. I'm sure some of you do too. The major difference between Christian and Jewish thinking about the Messiah involves the number connected with his forthcoming appearance. Jews believe that the next time Messiah sets foot in Jerusalem will be the first time. Christians understand that Messiah, the Hebrew, the one who is coming, already knows the streets of the city of Jerusalem because he walked them often. He died there. He was buried there and ascended into heaven from its highest hill after his resurrection. As Christians, we know that Jesus came and died and was buried and rose again. We're not looking for his first coming. We're looking for his second coming. We're quite familiar with our Lord's first coming because we accept the record of the four Gospels. The Bible tells us that he is coming to earth again. And though the exact expression, the second coming of Christ, is not in the Bible, it makes the assertion in many places. For example, the writer of Hebrews said, and is that it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Listen to this. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. There it is. Apart from sin for salvation. Now, one of the reasons why some Christians, some maybe even people who aren't Christians but are interested in this subject, are confused by the prophecies of Christ's second coming is the fact that in the Old Testament, the prophets did not understand the first and second advents of Christ as separate events. In other words, their perception of these prophecies was like looking at a mountain range from a distance. They saw what appeared to be one mountain, failing to see that there was another equally high mountain right behind it. And the prophets saw both comings of Christ either as one event or as very closely related in time. One Bible scholar has written this. He said, words spoken in one breath and written in one sentence may contain prophetic events that are millennia apart in fulfillment. It is evident that even Jesus' followers expected him to come and do what he said he would do when he came the first time. Remember, they thought when he came to be our Savior and was born in Bethlehem, that the promises related to his second coming would be fulfilled then. They wanted him to get the bonds of the Romans off their neck, and they wanted to be set free. They thought Jesus had come to be king at that moment, but that wasn't true. He came to be our Savior. He's coming to be our king. So let's talk for just a moment about the priority of the second coming. While it is true that most of us are more familiar with the first coming of Christ because we celebrate it at Christmas every year, 
it is the second coming of Christ that gets the most ink in the Bible. In fact, it's quite amazing. References to the second coming of Christ outnumber references to the first coming of Christ by a ratio of eight to one. Scholars have identified 1,845 biblical references to the second coming in the Bible, including 318 in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, Christ's return is emphasized in no less than 17 books. In the New Testament, authors speak of it in 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament. The second coming is very prominent in the Bible. And if people say they don't believe in it or don't know about it, they just are telling you they haven't read the Bible. In the New Testament, one out of every 30 verses is a reference to the second coming. So it's an important doctrine. The first two books that were written to the early church, First and Second Thessalonians, the second coming of Christ is in every single chapter of those two books. His return is mentioned 21 times by Jesus himself. It is second only to salvation is the most dominant subject in the New Testament. The fact that Christ's second coming features so prominently in Scripture is an indication that this event is important to God and that it should be important to us as well. So, the priority of the second coming. Let's talk about the prophecies of the second coming. And here I'm going to ask you to be patient with me because I want to take you through some scriptures. I don't usually just read one scripture after another, but today I'm going to do that for a moment because there are seven key scriptures in the Bible that tell us about the second coming of Christ. I want you to know where they are, and I want to read them to you. If I ask you who was the first prophet of the second coming, I can pretty much tell you that you aren't going to get it right, because I wouldn't have gotten it right until I realized this. So I'm going to read a scripture to you from the book of Jude. Don't ask me what chapter, or I'll know something about you you don't want me to know. <laughs> Jude 14 and 15. Listen carefully to these words. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Who was the first prophet of the second coming? Enoch, the seventh from Adam. Did you know that? Did you pass that test? So all the way back in the book of Genesis, here is this man. I don't understand that. I don't pretend to know how that fits into everything. But the Bible put that anchor in the book of Genesis to remind us that Jesus Christ is coming back a second time. Enoch told us about it. He was the seventh from Adam. And then there's Daniel. He was known for his prophetic dreams. He had dreams about events in his lifetime and about the things that would occur in the end times. This is what Daniel said about the second coming. He said, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. 
Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So we have Enoch, and we have Daniel. And then there's Zechariah. Now, I'm sure most of you know he's in the Bible, but you're not really sure where. While many of the Old Testament prophets wrote about the second coming of Jesus, it is Zechariah who has given us the clearest and most precise prediction of his second coming. Listen to his words from the 14th chapter of Zechariah. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faced Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Notice how Zechariah deals in specifics, even pinpointing the geographic location to which Jesus Christ will return. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a place that retains its ancient name even today. He's coming back to the Mount of Olives. So we got Enoch, and we've got Daniel, and we got Zechariah. Here's Jesus, Jesus himself telling us about this. Speaking from the Mount of Olives, where he will return, he affirmed his second coming to his disciples in dramatic terms. Here's what he said. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Enoch, Daniel, Zechariah, and Jesus. And then two angels contribute to the body of truth. Immediately following Christ's ascension into heaven, two angels appeared to the stunned disciples and they spoke words of comfort to them, and this is what they said. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And the next verse tells us, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. Did you catch that? Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives, and according to the angels, Jesus will return to the very same place, the Mount of Olives, and the words of the angels conveyed both consolation for the disciples and confirmation of his return. We go to Israel periodically, and one of the wonderful things we do when we go to Israel, we have a meeting on the southern steps, and it looks up toward Temple Mount. It's a beautiful location because when I'm standing in front, I can look over to the right, and there's the Mount of Olives. I always think about this. That's where Jesus went up. That's where he's coming down. That's the place. That's the spot. It's pinpointed in history and in the future. And the Bible tells us that we don't know when that's going to happen, 
We don't know when that's going to come, but we know where it's going to happen. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus will return. And then add to those other witnesses, Paul, the apostle. In his second letter to the Thessalonians, he describes what this will be like. In verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, The Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Are you getting the picture? The growing evidence in the Bible starting at Enoch. Now we're all the way up to the angels at the ascension. And then there's John who is the human author of the book of Revelation and he concludes this massive body of information by saying two times in the book of Revelation, behold he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him and even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And then at the end of the same book he says, he who testifies these things says, surely I am coming quickly, amen, even so come Lord Jesus. The prophecy of his return bookends Revelation. Obviously, we have excellent reason to anticipate the return of Christ. The Bible affirms it throughout as a certainty and describes it in specific terms with ample corroboration. And we are to be looking for that. You know, we're looking for the rapture. That's true. But seven years after the rapture is the second coming. We should look forward to all of these things that God has planned for us. We should be anticipating reigning with him, ruling with him during the millennium. All of these things are on the agenda, and you know most of them. I don't have to remind you of them. Many years ago in the city of Tokyo, a man whose name was Aizuburo Ueno adopted an Akita puppy. And this was his favorite breed of dog, and it had been his dream for many years to own one. He named his dog Hachiko, or Hachi for short. And instantly, man and man's best friend became inseparable. They shared a profound connection. After a few weeks, Mr. Wayno began walking the dog to the local train station where he left for work each morning. Hatchie spent most of the day at home but returned to the same train station every afternoon to greet his owner. Then they walked back to their house together. This was their pattern for a period of years, and every day, Mr. Wayno and Hatchie walked to the train station, and every day, Hatchie was waiting when Mr. Wayno arrived back from work. One day, sadly, Mr. Wayno did not come back. He had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage, and he died suddenly at work. Hatchie was quietly adopted by Wayno family's gardener and lived for another 10 years. But throughout his long life, he maintained his daily vigil. Every morning and every afternoon, he returned to the same train station. There he spent hours each day waiting for his master's return. Eventually, the dog became a folk hero of sorts as his story spread throughout Japan. 
People named him Chucken Hachiko, the faithful dog. And several movies have been made about the story. Today there's even a bronze statue of Hachi outside this train station. It's a popular place for young people to take selfies. Like Hachi, followers of Jesus in today's world are awaiting our master's return. Like Hachi, we don't know when that return will take place, but we do know when the second advent will take place. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus is coming back to make all things right. The priority of the second coming and the prophecies of it. Let's talk about the purpose of it. Why does Jesus come back the second time? Do you remember back in the day when we had the Iraqi encounter? And you remember the terms shock and awe? That military strategy has been part of the United States Armed Forces tactical approach since the 1990s. But the phrase itself became a national conversation in 2003 when we invaded Iraq. The premise of shock and awe is that a sudden overwhelming display of military force can paralyze the enemy's preparation and perception of the battlefield and destroy their will to fight. The idea is to throw a huge amount of offensive armaments toward your enemy with the goal of overwhelming them and short-circuiting their ability to respond. That was our strategy during the early days of Operation Iraqi Freedom. In a burst of power, the United States launched a coordinated combination of missiles, laser-targeted bombs, and the immediate goal was not only to destroy Iraqi defensive weapons, but to convince Iraqi civilians that the United States and its allies were serious, that Saddam Hussein and his regime would soon be removed from power. And less than five weeks later, our coalition forces entered Baghdad and Iraqi's capital was defeated and secured for us. When Jesus leads his heavenly offensive against Satan and the Antichrist at the Battle of Armageddon, when he comes the second time, he will follow a similar strategy, although he won't use conventional weapons. His weapon will be the glory, Christ's glory, transcendent splendor and power will be fully aimed at the evil that has bedeviled humanity for so long. In that final showdown, the rebellion of the tribulation period will come to a head. The Antichrist, the kings of the earth, the souls that follow them will gather one last time to try to defeat Jesus Christ. Their armies will be made up of soldiers from the ten nations of the revived Roman Empire. It will be made up of the beast, the Antichrist, with the false prophet at his side. They will lead these massive armies in an attempt to defy Christ's authority and his right to rule. And the ultimate revolt against God will take place. And when Christ's return draws near, they will do everything they can to prepare for the battle of the ages. And they will fail spectacularly. Listen to this. The Apostle John describes the shock and awe of the second coming. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye shall see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. The first time Jesus came to this earth, he appeared in obscurity. But the second time, 
the whole world will witness his return. The second advent is one of the most uh, glorious events. Titus 2.13 kind of puts the two events together. Here's what it says. Looking for the blessed hope, that's the rapture, the blessed hope, and the glorious appearing, that's the second advent. We should be looking for both of them. They're only seven years apart. And uh, the second advent will be the coronation of King Jesus, the complete devastation of all of the satanic uh, work that had been building up toward the Battle of Armageddon. The Lord Jesus will win the war. He will put down the rebellion. Those who are Christians will join him as we set up the kingdom. And for a thousand years, there'll be a reign of peace on this earth. The second advent is a very important moment, and we'll talk more about it when we get together tomorrow. This is Turning Point, and I'm David Jeremiah. Thanks for listening. For more information on Dr. Jeremiah's series, The Great Disappearance, please visit our website where you'll also find two free ways to help you stay connected. Our monthly magazine, Turning Points, and our daily email devotional. Sign up today at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. That's davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. Or call us at 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of David's new hardcover book, The Great Disappearance. 31 Ways to Be Rapture Ready, Informative and Inspiring. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also purchase the Jeremiah Study Bible in the English Standard, New International, and New King James versions with notes and articles from Dr. Jeremiah's decades of study. Get all the details when you visit our website, davidjeremiah.ca slash radio. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series, The Great Disappearance, on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Christmas will be here before you know it. So now is the time to prepare your heart with a timeless devotional written by Dr. David Jeremiah called Season of Joy. Enter the Christmas season with restored hope, resounding joy, reassuring peace, and renewed faith. This inspirational book is yours for a gift of any amount in support of Turning Point. And for a gift of $100 or more, you'll receive a four-pack to share the season of joy with others. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca. That's davidjeremiah.ca. Take the young ones in your life on an unforgettable journey that will get them excited about the Word of God with the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible. Then continue the adventure with monthly audio adventures on airshipgenesis.com. Plus, download the Airship Genesis mobile game where kids will travel back in time to the life of Jesus. Blast off with the young one in your life at airshipgenesis.com. If you've enjoyed today's program with Dr. David Jeremiah, you might be interested in hearing it again at your convenience. Stay connected to Turning Point by visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca or by downloading our free Canadian mobile app. The app can be found by searching for Turning Point Canada on your smart device app store. Create an account and order digital resources from today's program with easy one-click checkout at davidjeremiah.ca. Here is something you may not have thought about. There is one kind of person on earth who never lies, never exaggerates, 
never criticizes and never brags. Who is that person? It's the person who never speaks. Now, I've used that impossible example to make this point. The more we speak, the more likely we are to say something we will regret. That's a principle of Scripture, too. Proverbs says that in a multitude of words, sin is not lacking. The book of James says to be slow to speak. Conquering the impulse to speak out takes self-control, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's gift of edifying speech on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.